When I was a kid, I was a very quiet child. I probably just never spoke much. But it meant that I, I spent a lot of time just sitting in the background, just observing um, and probably thinking far too much. And I remember just seeing all the families around us being really happy and almost trying a little bit too hard to be happy sometimes. But every now and then you just hear these sort of hushed conversations about something tragic that had happened amongst the adults. You know, there'd be that family where someone had attempted suicide or, you know, there'd be that other family where someone's just crippled by depression and can't work anymore. Um, you know, there'd just be this other tragic accident where someone had died and it was all just terrible. And But the, as a kid, the thing that confused me was that after talking about these terrible things in hushed voices, everyone would just bow their heads and just keep on going. You know, it's like, oh, well, we can't do anything about it. Just got to be happy. And obviously, little kid trying to understand an adult world, but I think I came to this point of thinking, well, either... like It's a very odd reaction to a tragic thing, to just pretend it's not there and keep on going. And either they don't care... Or they're terrified. And, and I think that's the position I sort of came to, that it's like all the adults in the world are just scared that one day it's going to be them. It's going to be their family. That's, there's, there's almost this hidden enemy lurking in the world. Like, and you just see it one by one, different families getting hit, marriages falling apart, children turning to drugs. And everyone's just trying to be as optimistic as possible, hoping that it's just not going to be them. And we have no idea what to do about it. Like we, it's kind of the same way when everyone sits around having conversations about how to save the world. I'm sure you've had those conversations over dinner. You talk about how tragic everything is and the economy's terrible and the wars are going to happen and the world's going to end and, oh, but we can't do anything about it. Let's just move on and pretend it's not there. And there's almost this, this strange relationship between almost like a despair but also this this optimism that we're almost fighting to try and keep our heads above water. I was reminded of that when I was looking at these readings because this first reading from the book of wisdom where it talks about how death was not actually God's plan. But it goes on to say it was the devil's envy that brought death into the world. And this is one of these lines in scripture that always fascinates me because it just communicates so much or it holds so much behind it. It was the devil's envy that brought death into the world. You know, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's experienced like what I was saying, like that sense that there is always this, this fear of what if, you know, when is the tragedy going to strike? You know, when is, when is that other bad thing going to happen? And there is this constant desire to try and be optimistic or or almost try and medicate that fear. You know, if if disaster is going to strike, then let's be as happy as we can now. You know, let's just laugh uncontrollably. Let's just entertain ourselves endlessly. You know, let's just try and find love wherever we can and not think about the consequences. You know, to, to try to just live as best we can now. And yet the irony is that often then causes even more pain. You know, that I think what this line is trying to point to 
It's really trying to reveal a deep mystery. It was the devil's envy that brought death into the world. What was he envious of? He was envious of you and your destiny. He was envious of what you were going to become, what you are going to become. And, and this has always been part of the tradition in, in the Christian spirituality that there's almost like this, this order of creation. You know, God creates the highest order of creation, which is the angels. And then the next, you know, lower down is us. And then lower down is then the animals and then plants and then the rocks and then the trees or whatever. You know, like, there's, there's sort of different layers of being. And, and this sense that somehow in God's plan, we would be elevated to be higher than the angels in the end. That God would dignify us with so much love by becoming one of us. And I don't know whether we ever really sort of stop to realise just how profound that is. That God would choose one part of his creation and say, I'm going to love this part of my creation so much that I'm going to become part of it. See, because God did not become an angel. As much as the angels are greater than us, they're more powerful than us, they know more than us. He never became an angel. He became a human. Because he he chose us. He chose us to dwell with him. To basically, as we would say, to to eventually dwell in the heart of the Trinity. You know, that we will be caught up right in the heart of God. We're not even sure the angels are going to be there. You know, the catechism is kind of silent about that bit, but, but it does say quite clearly that we're going to be there. We're going to dwell in the unity of the Trinity. You know, this is your destiny. This is what you are made for. And the devil, who was an angel, or is a fallen angel, is envious of that. You know, in his, in his pride, he, he hates you. He despises you. And he wants to do everything he can to steal your inheritance, to destroy that. Now, this is the great mystery, you know. To, to what degree does sin create sickness and trial and, and suffering in, in the world we're living in? You know, and you could go to a thousand different theologians and probably get 2,000 different answers to that question. You know, no, no one is really sure exactly how that mystery of sin and suffering all really works. But I think there's, there's part of it where it actually kind of... Where, how do I say this? Like we, we end up allowing ourselves to lose our inheritance because of that mystery. You know, it's because we see a world filled with suffering and trial and we decide it's all useless, it's all meaningless. We're never actually going to get the inheritance that is due to us, so we may as well just steal what we can now. And and this is where we end up stealing what's basically the imitation of heaven. You know, I see so many really good young Catholic people who are just getting into sexual relationships before marriage. And it's because they're trying to get heaven, but they're trying to steal it. You know, for whatever reason, you know, there's pain, there's, there's you know, stuff they're trying to look for in their lives, a validation. But that's, that's the way the, the devil's envy steals your inheritance. You're made for more than that. You're made for something glorious. You're made for a real communion, a real love. 
And yet we're in a world which, which sells us the imitation, you know, through pornography, through this overly sexualized culture. You know, you're, you're made for a world where you find true fulfillment and joy. And yet we don't believe that's actually possible. And so we trade it in for alcohol. We trade it in for endless hours of television. You know, we trade it in for an imitation of peace, an imitation of joy. And, and, and we're, we're doing this collectively, like it's not just us individually, but our whole society is now built around this imitation of heaven. But I think we need, what we need to come back to is this reality that you were made for more than this. You were made for so much more. And, and I think the real question in the heart of this is, where is God? You know, we find ourselves in a place where there is pain, there is trouble, there is, you know, this, this sort of lurking fear of a, a death that creeps into our families. Where is God? I think that's where this gospel speaks very powerfully into it. Because, once again, we have a God who has become human, a God who has walked amongst us, a God who's still walking amongst us. Yeah, we have the risen Christ in our midst, still walking amongst us. But the question is whether you have enough hope to look for him and to find him. Yeah, there were so many people in Israel who were suffering and sick at this time. How many of them actually had the hope, had the desire, had the belief that there was something more and went out looking for Jesus? Most other people probably just gave up and stayed at home and tried to drink away the pain. Yeah, this, this image of this woman with a hemorrhage is such a powerful image because she's determined to find the Saviour. You know, she believes that God is in their midst. She believes that God has not abandoned them. And she's saying, I want to find him. To the point where she bursts through the crowd and touches him without any permission. Doesn't say, excuse me, sir, can you heal me? She just says, I know what I want. And I need to find where God is in the midst of this. I think we need something of the same attitude. I think you need to be aware of where is that place in your life where you are giving up where you don't actually believe that there's a prospect of real love, where there's a real joy, real peace, real hope. You know, what are those areas where we have already given up and believed, well, my only option is sin. It's the only thing that's going to fill that gap. And you need to have that hope to say, no, I believe there's more. And I'm going to fight for more. I'm going to go searching for more. And, and to be crying out saying, God, where are you in this? I think that's what he wants. He doesn't want us to be passive, just sitting back and waiting. And Because if you look through the, so many of the stories of healing, Jesus celebrates the person who's a little bit arrogant almost. You know, they, they know what they want so much that they sort of push their way through the crowd to get to it. As Christians, we sort of say it's good to be just polite and wait your turn, but Jesus kind of celebrates the person who, who is so determined that they've just got to get what they want. And, and I think that you need something of that in your spirituality. Don't just bow your head and keep trying to be happy. Don't just drop your head and think, well, we can't do anything about it. 
We've just got to keep on keeping on. Like you need to have something in you that says, where is Jesus? Where is he in this situation? Where is he in my marriage? Where is he in my relationships? Where is he in my workplace? Where is he in my depression, my pain? And, and go looking for him and cry out for him and, and touch him and say, Lord, I believe, heal me. And trust that he's there. You know, that, that, that his very presence to you is where the healing comes from. You know, it's the very fact that he has dignified you by joining you in that suffering. The knowledge of that alone is healing. You know, because once again, often we're just looking for God to click his fingers and heal us and move on. And... But once again, it comes back to what is he were trying to restore, really? He wasn't trying to restore this woman's health. He was trying to restore her to her true inheritance. To know what it was to be human. That God was in your midst. God had become one of you. God had suffered with you. That is healing on a level so much deeper than just the body. That, that taps into the, the real core of our pain at the level of our identity. And, and, and that's what we need to be encountering here. You know, we come here every week, week after week, and we look at Jesus on the cross in human form, and we go home and we just think, yep, of course, we've heard the story a thousand times. But I want to encourage you this time, look deeper, look at it differently, and realize that God has joined you in your deepest sorrow. God has joined you in that place of your deepest loneliness, rejection. He's dignifying you. He's restoring you to your true inheritance. And from that place, he then draws you into heaven. 